Hey there. Thanks for joining us at Risen King Church for our weekly podcast. We pray you meet God and know that you are loved today. Be sure to visit us at risenking.life to take all of your next steps and follow us on Facebook, Instagram, and YouTube. Enjoy the message. When Lisa and I were praying about the ministry of the church for the year 2020, Lisa kept saying to me, I feel like something's coming, some kind of change. I don't know what it is, but something's going to happen. And as we were praying about particularly the teaching ministry of 2020, we began the year really believing that we wanted to take the people of Risen King much more deeply into God's word. And in the first sermon of that series, where Lisa was unpacking Paul's teaching about all scripture being inspired by God, God breathing on every word, she brought out an oxygen mask and she attached it to a Bible and she attached the mask to her face. And she, she explained to our congregation that in order to go through the difficult times of life, in order to persevere under trial, you have to breathe in the word of God. It's a picture as I watched her use that oxygen mask and attach it to the scripture to breathe in the breath of God, the word of God as a breath that I'll never forget. She also told one of the classic illustrations from one of the great English preachers, Charles Haddon Spurgeon, when he was asked, was it more important to study your Bible or to pray? And he answered the question with this. He says, is it more important to breathe in or to breathe out? And so what we realized is as we are breathing in the scriptures, it's equally important to breathe out the scriptures ourselves in prayer. That both actions are what make a people remarkable, effective, significant in terms of the kingdom of God. And so for the next eight weeks, I would like you to join with me in this challenge to learn to breathe out the word of God in prayer, learning to pray the scriptures, not just to study the scriptures, but to pray the scriptures. And how we're going to do that is we're going to do a, a study in the Apostle Paul's prayers. Now, we want to go more deeply into prayer, maybe more deeply than any of us have ever gone. I know as I was preparing this series, I was so convicted to change even the structure of my prayer and the focus of my prayers. One of the writers who helped me uh, really give a framework for this study is D.A. Carson, who actually wrote a book called Praying with Paul. And he says this, he says, when it comes to knowing God, many of us constitute a culture of the spiritually stunted. So much of our religion is packaged to address our felt needs. And these are almost uniformly anchored in our pursuit of happiness and fulfillment without rightly understanding where true happiness and fulfillment lie. God becomes the great being who potentially at least meets our needs, and fulfills our aspirations. But we think too little of what he is like 
of his wisdom, knowledge, power, love, transcendence, mystery, and glory. We are not intoxicated by his holiness and his love. His thoughts and words capture too little of our imagination, too little of our discourse, too few of our priorities. Many of our religious exercises and verbal expressions feel painfully unreal, inauthentic, merely formulaic. You know, the one true measure of spiritual knowledge, of knowing God in a genuine way, is prayer. Spiritual, persistent, biblically-minded prayer. One of the great young men who gave his life for Christ and his words, though he died very young, his words have continued through the centuries to challenge us. He was a Scottish man by the name of Robert Murray McShane, and he declared this, what a man is alone and on his knees before God, that he is and no more. See, most of us, we want to work for God. So we organize, we build institutions, we publish books, we insert ourselves into the media, we develop evangelistic church planting strategies, we administer discipleship programs. But Carson says this, is it not obvious that with all our organizing and all our work that we have forgotten how to pray? So prayer is not just a means to our ends. Martin Luther said it this way, to be a Christian without prayer is no more possible than to be alive without breathing, which is more important, breathing in or breathing out. Both are essential. So this leads us not just to the obligation of prayer or the drudgery of prayer, but to ask this question. If we have the kind of access that Jesus has purchased for us and that the Holy Spirit is birthing in us to the Father, where is our delight in prayer? Where is our sense that we are meeting with the living God, that we are undertaking work that he has assigned, that we are interceding with genuine unction and anointing before the very throne of grace? When was the last time we came away from a period of intercession, feeling that like Jacob or Moses, we had prevailed with God? James 4 tells us you do not have because you do not ask. You don't ask God. And when you ask, you do not receive because you ask with wrong motives that you may spend what you get on your pleasures. For these next eight weeks, we're going to focus on Paul. We're going to limit our focus to the way that Paul prayed, to Paul's petitions. We shall try to grasp not only the rudiments of Paul's prayers, but also how we as Christians can adopt Paul's theology of prayer, his understanding of God in the way that he prays, and then bring that into our own attempts to pray. Each day you'll have the opportunity to deal with these scriptures, to pray, to focus. And while you're praying, do you understand, you'll be praying the same things that your brothers and sisters are praying. Lasting renewal springs from the work of the Holy Spirit as he takes the word of God that he himself inspired and then he applies it to our lives and we pray it back to the Father. We actually will spend a good deal 
of our series in Paul's prayers for the Thessalonians, both in the first and the second letter. This is 2 Thessalonians chapter 1. And the reason we're going to look at this is that before he actually offers petitions to God, he sets up a framework for all of our prayers. If you will get this framework, you will get the same kind of effect. You'll get the same kind of impact that the Apostle Paul had in his prayers. So here's what he, here's what he writes. We ought, we ought always to give thanks to God for you, brothers, as is right, because your faith is growing abundantly and the love of every one of you for one another is increasing. Therefore, we ourselves boast about you in the churches of God for your steadfastness and faith in all your persecutions and in the afflictions that you are enduring. This is the evidence of the righteous judgment of God that you may be considered worthy of the kingdom of God for which you are also suffering. Since indeed God considers it just to repay with affliction those who afflict you and to grant relief to you who are afflicted as well as to us. When the Lord Jesus is revealed from heaven with his mighty angels in flaming fire, inflicting vengeance on those who do not know God and on those who do not obey the gospel of our Lord Jesus. They will suffer the punishment of eternal destruction away from the presence of God and from the glory of his might when he comes on that day to be glorified in his saints and to be marveled at among all who have believed because our testimony to you was believed. Now, the reason we're looking at this framework is because Paul's life was remarkable. He gloriously lived for his Lord. He gloriously lived for the gospel of Jesus Christ. And everywhere Paul went, and you have to understand, here is a Jewish rabbi who is going into Gentile cities. And everywhere he went, the gospel flourished. Churches were raised up, life-giving churches, elders and deacons were raised up, pastors and preachers and missionaries were raised up, and whole cultures were changed by the work and by the ministry of the Apostle Paul. But he makes it clear in all of his letters that the foundation of his success was his prayer life. And in this study, we're going to look closely at how Paul prayed and how he saw that kind of impact. I'm suggesting to you that as we look at these recorded prayers, that we're going to see how you should pray in such a way to impact your family, your culture, your community, our church, and to see happening here and now what Paul saw happening in his day. Now, what we're going to reflect on here before we look at the petitions that he prayed next week, we're looking at the foundations of his prayer life. Because as you enter into prayer, sometimes, friends, how you approach is more important than what you say. Because the approach is what gives you a foundation for being heard, for being answered. Paul begins even his petitions by saying this, these words. He says, with this in mind, we constantly pray for you. So what we want to look at is, well, what did he have in mind before he actually prayed for the Thessalonians? So he's referring to everything that he has written 
in this chapter before he tells his petitions. So there are two dominant features of Paul's prayer framework. I'll just tell you in a brief way what the two are. The one is thankfulness, and we're going to talk about what the thankfulness means. But the second is confidence. And it's a confidence that comes from the certainty that he has of the vindication, not only of his life, but his perseverance and of his ministry. He is certain that every believer and every act of faith is going to be vindicated by the Lord himself. So there's thankfulness and there's confidence. So the first thing we want to look at, and Paul really unpacks well what he's thankful for. Now listen, this is where we have got to change the way we pray. Our overarching theme of every prayer must include an, an, a foundation, an underlying note of thankfulness. So Paul tells about God's grace that he's seen in the lives of the believers in Thessalonica. So in order to have an effective framework like Paul, we have to begin to understand that without the element of thanksgiving, without observing and giving testimony, even in our toughest times, to the signs of God's grace that we're not only seeing in ourselves, but the signs of God's grace towards those that we love and pray for. If we're not in that place of thanksgiving, then we're not going to have a framework to pray aright or to see the answers that we long for. Verses 3 and 4, I'll read it to you again. What we ought always to thank God. You see that? We ought always to thank God. And then he says, for you. And then he talks about the things that he's thankful for in them. So then this thanksgiving is a fundamental component in the mental, or even you could say in the theological framework that largely controls every prayer that Paul prays, his intercession. The problem with this is most of us as modern Christians, we're really incredibly superficial in our thanksgiving, in the depths of our thanksgiving. And the reason is that we tend to tie thanksgiving to how we're doing materially. We're, we're looking at our health. We look at our finances. We look at our careers. We look at our relationships and, and, and if things are going well there, we will be thankful. But that's not what Paul ties his thanksgiving to. And when all we do is think about, well, how am I doing materially? How am I doing physically? How's my life going in terms of my goals and my objectives? If, if that's all we do, what will happen is the prayer framework itself will weaken. Paul gives thanks for more than just what's going on in his life. He sees signs of grace among these Christians in Thessalonica. Now, oftentimes when I've led prayer meetings, one of the worst segments is if you say, people, it would be good right now if we would spend some time giving thanks. And what you hear is the most superficial, trite, uh, just wasted time of people thanking God for things that really have no depth of insight to them or no understanding whatsoever of the grace of God. But they're often thanking God 
for what they really value, which isn't God's grace and isn't the science of God's grace. When our kids were small, we were teaching them to pray. And we particularly like to use dinner time as a time to get both our son, who was four years older than our daughter, to pray. And our daughter, once she started learning to pray and enjoyed that aspect of, of communicating, she would often volunteer. And I can remember this one particular year where she had had a wonderful Christmas. And so every night she says, I want to be the one who gives thanks. And uh, immediately she would, she, would, she would speak out with great joy. She would say, thank you, God, for the Christmas presents. Now, the problem was she did that every night for seven months. And I can remember my son just getting so frustrated with his sister and saying, can't you be thankful for something else other than the Christmas presents? Well, there were many things that I thought about with that, that scenario with my daughter. One, she was praying and thanking God for what really mattered to her. And what really mattered to her, even in July, were the presents that she had received at Christmas. But number two, I think about my son and, and his frustration in a way of saying, can't, can't you move on from there? Can't you take that and, and, and find other things that you are thankful for so that we don't have to hear every night that you're thankful for the Christmas presents? So what, what does Paul do? He starts talking about what he gives thanks for. And, and, and in this, we start to understand what really matters. Uh, Paul gives thanks that his readers' faith, that the Thessalonian Christians, that their faith is growing. And, and that this growth in the faith is really a, an indication that they're not stuck in yesterday's attainments. But that every day they're stretching upward to spiritual maturity. And this causes thanks in Paul. He also gives thanks that their love is increasing. See, what he has in mind in this context is not just their love toward God, but the, the very practical way that they're actually expressing and, and showing this love that they have for God, they're showing it to one another in verse 3. You see, if their love for one another is growing, it can only be because they are truly Jesus' disciples. Did not Jesus himself say that such love would be the distinguishing mark of his followers? Now, I mean, can we look at the reality of the world in which we're living in and the church in which we're living in? Paul is saying that one of the distinguishing marks of God's grace, of God's work in a believer's life, is not just that the believer says, I love God more, but that the believer is able and enabled to love others more. And you have to remember something. <laughs> Thessalonians were a diverse group. They had every reason to not love one another. There were Jews there. There were Greeks there. There were particularly uh, women who had come to Christ who were from the highest strata of society. And there were some who were either slaves or former slaves there. 
And so what is Paul really talking about? He's talking about a supernatural love that's being expressed that doesn't have to do with the fact they like each other because they are like one another. He's talking about a love that demonstrates Jesus's unconditional love being shared so that a Jewish person loves a Gentile person. A person who'd come from the strata of being a slave and not free can love someone who once was a slaveholder. This is not something that can be done through programming or organization. And so Paul is saying, I know that the way that you're growing in love for one another is an indicator. Is an indicator of God's grace, of God's work in your midst. You see, in some ways, until we begin to see in our churches, we begin to see people who have no physical characteristics in common, who have no natural affinity for one another, but who love one another and love one another, even though the ethnicity might not be the same or the socioeconomic strata might not be the same. But you see this ever growing love for one another. You see, if your prayer life doesn't include this, that's not a biblical prayer. It's not a biblical, it's not a biblical objective. I mean, look, look at what Jesus said. He didn't say, my disciples will be distinguished by how well they know theology. My disciples, he says, will be distinguished by how they love people that they shouldn't even love. And everybody will see it, he says. Then third, Paul gives thanks. And he gives thanks because he sees a group of people who are persevering under trial. This is a way you can look at how he frames his prayer. He says, have you noticed how powerfully the grace of God is operating in the lives of the Thessalonian believers? The way they withstand the pressures of persecution, of assorted trials. The way they're doing this is remarkable. It's a compelling testimony to the grace of God. This is what we want in the midst of COVID-19, in the midst of a pandemic, in the midst of economic and political uncertainty. We want to be the people that you can see and give thanks for that the powerful grace of God is operating in our lives. How would it manifest? That we withstand the pressures. That though the trials are coming against us in ways that are overwhelming in some ways to us personally, yet our perseverance, our withstanding is truly remarkable and is a testimony of God's grace in our midst. So here's what Paul says. And, and this is, my friend, this is the way he prays every prayer that he prays. This is the framework of every prayer of Paul. See, by being fortified by their growing faith and love, these Christians are pressing on and on. And Paul is saying, what an example you are. What an encouragement what an incentive for the rest of us. And so his, his prayer, though it is a pastoral prayer for their, for their protection and for their advancing even more, but yet it includes this boasting in the midst of it, of their faith and of their love, because as he boasts of their faith and love, he's really praising and giving thanksgiving to God. And he's uttering this in the presence of other churches because this letter is going to be circulated. As a matter of fact, one of the ways that we know Paul's prayers were so effective is almost 2,000 years later, we still are reading about this church. 
and we're reading these letters ourselves. So if in our prayers, we're going to develop a kind of mental or theological framework that has this kind of, that has this kind of grit to it, that's equal to Paul's, then we must begin to look beyond ourselves even and look for the signs of God's grace and God's work in the lives of others, particularly in other Christians, in our own lives as well. And then we begin to have a true thanksgiving for the grace of God rise up in us. Why is this so important? Well, let me, let me, let me say it two ways to you. Thanksgiving is the language of faith. A person who lives by faith will always live in thanksgiving. Because you and I, we live in a time of the already and the not yet. We live in, a, we live in a, 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 an epoch. We live in a, 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 you know, a generation where God is pouring out his grace upon us. And yet many of, what is, many of the promises of God have not yet been fulfilled and will not yet be fulfilled until Jesus returns or you go home to be with him. And so this is the season of your life in which you can offer faith. And the way that you offer your faith is not by constantly complaining and grumbling and only having an eye to what you don't have, but rather having an eye towards the things that God's doing and, and, and being able to gather those things in and strengthen your heart so that you persevere under trial. The other thing is this, the opposite is true, and that is that anxiety is the language of hell. Anxiety is your ability and my ability to bring events and hurt and pain and grief and all manner of negative emotions into our present, which are all about a future that will not even happen, so that we feel a pain of an unspecified future in our presence so that it weakens us and destroys our ability to live by faith. So thanksgiving is the language of faith and anxiety, worry, complaining is the language of hell. And so Paul begins to explain to us that, that these elements in his thanksgiving of seeing God at work, seeing God at work in others, this is the framework of what he values. And these values, see, for him, what he's saying here, he values like my daughter valued her Christmas presents. He prays this continually for them. He prays this every time he prays and he gives thanks. And we urgently, friends, need to develop a faith framework in our prayer. Why is this so important? Well, here's what you really have to know. Faith only grows when it is outwardly focused what a lot of us do is we're constantly looking inside and saying, you know, do I have enough faith? Do I have a strong faith? Do I have a pure faith? And to constantly be doing circumspection inside yourself and being so introspective about your faith and evaluating it and assessing it. All that does is weaken your faith because faith is only strong when it's placed in an object other than faith itself and other than you. So faith is really beholding, as Paul did in every circumstance. He was beholding the faithfulness of God and his own faith began to rise because his eyes were off his circumstances 
and they were always on to the faithfulness of God. By giving thanks for the signs of God's grace, hope increases. And I've said this many times, I'll say it again. The spiritual generator of every believer's life is hope because we are all hope-based creatures. We have to not only kind of have some understanding of the present, but we have to have certainty about our future or our faith diminishes. When we see signs of God's grace all around us, it increases our certainty and our anticipation about the future. Without expectancy, faith diminishes. Prayer becomes drudgery. Well, the second cause, not only of his thankfulness, but it's really the second cause of his prayer framework is that Paul prays with absolute confidence. He has such confidence. And what is he confident about? Well, he's confident that God's going to vindicate every sacrifice they make, every faithful service that they give, and everything they persevere in, in the face of the trials and tribulations. He is certain of their vindication. And truly, friends, the Thessalonian church is a story of amazing grace. Thessalonica was a tough city. And when Paul went there, he he only was allowed to stay for three weeks. That's all he got. He had three weeks of ministry before there was a major controversy that broke between the Jewish people in the synagogue who became followers of Christ and accepted Paul's gospel and those who saw the danger and the threat to Judaism that the gospel was. And so a major, uh, 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 just a major conflict arose with a lot of violence, so much so that Paul had to be be, uh, just violently thrown out of the city. But in those three weeks, just three weeks, the gospel had taken root. And, and so there's a story here that without the apostle, without any of the real leaders of the early Christian church there, this Thessalonian church, by the grace of God, began to flourish and began to grow. And so what God, what God is putting in Paul's heart is what needs to be in your heart is this confidence that when you pray, God is the vindicator of faithfulness. He's the vindicator of perseverance. Now, their perseverance doesn't qualify them for the kingdom. No, it doesn't earn them the right into the kingdom, but rather what Paul is saying is this perseverance in the face of such persecution is the evidence that they have They have received the right to enter the kingdom. Paul says it's the reason for which they are counted worthy to enter the kingdom. And the critical turning point in their lives came when they believed the gospel. You believed our testimony to you in verse 10. This is a powerful, this is a powerful fundamental of prayer. If you are constantly praying with no confidence that God is going to vindicate your faithfulness, if you're constantly praying with no confidence that your perseverance matters, then you will lose your faithfulness and you will lose your perseverance. Many times we face obstacles, we face challenges, and we don't know how things will turn out. I read an article today 
that was somewhat discouraging that, that this whole thing of, our, of the pandemic of COVID-19 is that there probably, probably will be no definitive end of this situation. Wouldn't it be great if it just, we could announce one day it's over and it's done, but it, they're saying to us, it could linger, it could show up in all these different ways. There's uncertainty. How will we respond in the uncertainty? Will we trust in God's vindication of our faithfulness? Will we trust and persevere no matter what we have to face? This is the evidence, Paul says, that we're being counted worthy to be citizens, to be members of the very kingdom of God, to be kingdom carriers. I'll just tell you a a quick illustration of this. Many years ago, Lisa and I were faced with a lot of uncertainty about the future of our ministry. The idea of vindication became incredibly important to us. I had come to the place where I really realized that you really, really had to understand spiritual warfare in order to, re- to, to deal with the strongholds and the bondages of sin in, the, in any believer's life, but especially in my life. And I had experienced this wonderful deliverance, this wonderful freedom, just by going through a very simple tool called the seven steps to freedom. And I thought nothing of it ex- because every word of it was biblically based. Every prayer was just praying the Bible back to God. But it was dealing with areas like unforgiveness, dealing with areas like, you know, uh, rebellion against authority, uh, habitual sins in your life, all these kind of very biblical themes. And, but the denomination that I was a part of, the denomination I grew up in, and the one in which I had been ordained in, did not believe that this was possible and they did not believe it was biblical. And so they came after me. There was a trial. There was all kinds of stuff that happened to us. Very unfair. A lot of injustice. And I lost my, my place in that denomination. I lost my place in the church that I had planted. And Lisa and I would just pray each night and say, Lord, what do you have for us? And then Lisa began to pray, Lord, will you vindicate Mike? Lord, will you vindicate him? And we began to just use that theme, that confidence, because this is not only a theme in the Apostle Paul, it's throughout the Psalms, it's throughout the Old Testament, the vindication of the Lord, even in the face of your enemies, in the face of those who have spitefully used you or those who have have accused you unjustly. And we began to say, Lord, will you vindicate? And and it was not a quick thing. It was not a sudden thing. But those prayers that were prayed in 1993, those tears that were cried by my wife and by me as we prayed together were exactly what Paul was talking about here, that our God is the one who defends us that our God is the one who vindicates us. Now, you can make the decision that you're going to vindicate yourself, but that would be foolish. That would be futile, and it would lead to nothing but frustration. Or you can be like the Apostle Paul and realize, here's where I pray. 
I pray with confidence that as I am faithful, as I am persevering. Now, obviously, when you have done wrong, you have no defense and you have to go to God and repent. And even that he brings his errant daughters, his errant sons under his protection and takes responsibility and takes care even of the things that we have done wrong. That's what grace is. Grace isn't favor that we merit. It's unmerited favor. But particularly, Paul is talking about that as a believer truly becomes faithful and truly decides to persevere, that a characteristic of that prayer life must be, Lord, I am confident that you will vindicate me. And I have seen him do it in such wonderful ways. And this becomes a confidence that that faith arises. But it's a confidence that God is your deliverer, that God is your vindicator. And this might be one of the most important little truths that is so profound. And that is, it's not about your victory. (laughs) It's about you having confidence in Jesus's victory of recognizing that you died with Christ, that you are raised with Christ and you are now seated at the right hand of the father with Christ and his victory is your victory. And what that means is that he has qualified you as a member of God's ultimate kingdom. And what Paul goes to, he doesn't look at what's going to happen in Thessalonica. He takes him all the way to the final triumph of our God in a new heaven and in a new earth. And and this is what I'm trying to explain to you. Endurance here is not about just, you know, gritting it or gutting it out. It's not just stamina. It has to be that you look and say, yes, I may not see the full vindication here on earth, but I have this ultimate vindication that is coming. And that's what Paul lifts their eyes to. He says, believers, there will be vindication. God is just, Paul writes. He will give relief to you who are troubled and to us as well. On the day he comes to be glorified in his people and to be marveled at among all those who have believed. This includes you, he says, because you believed our testimony to you. In Paul's prayer, he has this absolute confidence in the vindication of his faith. This this is not necessarily a popular teaching in our modern thought. But Paul is teaching us that you don't just keep focusing on your circumstances right now. If you do so and you say, God, how will you vindicate me in this circumstance? You're going to lose confidence. He's saying you have to lift your eyes up above your circumstances and not be mired in trying to say, why is this happening to me? And how can any good come out of this? Rather, our eyes must be focused, Paul says, to the ultimate victory, the consummation of the kingdom of God, But Paul often also says you can all not only do you look forward to what's coming, which is a certainty. But he says, look back. Look back at the cross. When you're going through trials, don't look at the trial only. Look at the cross, he says. Well, what does this mean? (laughs) I love this. If the worst thing, if the most evil thing that has ever happened in this world. And those early Christians, you see, like Peter and John and James and his disciples, and Mary 
And they're all surrounding Jesus. And yet, having put their faith in him, put their trust in him, they experience the greatest tragedy of all. He dies. He's killed. And yet the Bible says that was completely under the sovereign superintendence of our God. Peter, when he's speaking about this, he says it's 100 percent the action of wicked men. So you and I don't have to look at what is wicked and call it good, friends. That's not faith. That's uh, that's folly. And yet at the same time, we can look at the 100 percent action of wicked men and we can see 100 percent the divine strategy in the cross. Even this amazingly wicked activities of men, these were worked together for the saving good of those who would come to love God in Jesus Christ. This is why Romans 8:28 is so powerful. He says that he's working everything, everything together for good. That means the bad things, the good things. You don't have to call the bad things good. He's working it for good. But that's not where the sentence finishes. Paul says there's a qualification. There's no limitation to God's power to work everything together. But he said, for those who love him, for those who are looking at, at their calling for his purposes. So Dr. Martin Lloyd-Jones, who I love his teaching, he said this. I believe that Paul had a special reason for using the term love. God works together everything for good for those who love rather than the term believing at this point. One of the best ways whereby we can decide immediately if we really love God or not is our reaction to adversity. There are many people who when trials and tribulations arise, they give up. They feel they have been let down. Love, friends, equals thanksgiving and it equals confidence. Do you understand? That's what Paul is saying. When your prayers have the note of love for your God, then they will always have this fundamental framework, giving thanks and having confidence. Well, what about then bitterness and unforgiveness? Isn't this basically what Paul talks about here and he's talked about elsewhere? And that is, who's going to get vengeance? Is revenge yours? And you may call it justice, but usually... What we call justice is just a desire for somebody to atone or for somebody to be avenged. So is vengeance mine or is it his? Paul makes it really clear. Matter of fact, he's so blunt, it's probably troubling to us. He says he will pay back trouble to those who trouble you. Now, as modern people, that's kind of a difficult principle to understand. But, but let's, let's unpack it a little bit. Where evil occurs, where injustice occurs, it must be paid back or God himself is affronted because God is just. Here's what, again, Carson is helpful here, I believe. He says, if God forever overlooks evil, ostensibly on the ground that he is loving and forbearing, is he not also betraying the fact that he is pathetically unconcerned about injustice? God's holiness, his holiness demands retribution. His love sends his own son to absorb that retribution on behalf of others. The cross simultaneously stands as the irrefutable evidence that God demands retribution and cries out that it is also the measure of God's love. That is why 
in the Christian view of things, forgiveness is never detached from the cross. In other words, forgiveness is never the product of love alone. Forgiveness is always substitutionary. It is always an act of the will. See, if you're going to your prayer life with grudges, if you're going to your prayer life with anger and unforgiveness and bitterness, then you're going to lose out on this framework. Paul is not denying that the Thessalonian Christians are being afflicted and the 100% evil of the people afflicting them. But at the same time, he is saying, you can be certain that God will deal with those who have afflicted you. And so forgiveness is legal, friends, because of the cross of Jesus Christ, because he has forgiven you in Christ. You can forgive those who have come against you. Now, so what we're saying is that effective prayer, remarkable prayer, and I'm calling remarkable prayer this. It's a prayer that touches heaven so that heaven begins to touch earth. Well, that kind of prayer keeps these two things in mind. That you and I are looking because we love God, because we have confidence in God. We're looking for God's grace in every circumstance. We're looking beyond our circumstances even to the bigger picture that God in Christ, through the Holy Spirit, is conforming us to the image of his son. But he is bringing about an ultimate consummation of his kingdom. And we're a part of that. And we need to live now worthy of that kingdom. God's faithfulness to vindicate us, particularly when you are being faithful and you are persevering. And so that we have such confidence and we have such thanksgiving that our eyes are lifted in prayer beyond our present circumstances. And we always keep an eye on the culmination of all things in the return of our Lord Jesus Christ. Now, you can spend the rest of your days praying, God, tell me why this happened. God, tell me how good is going to come out of this. And what it will do is it will diminish your faith. You can spend the rest of your days looking inside and saying, if I had enough faith, oh, I wish my faith were stronger, and it will diminish your faith. Or you can begin to do like Paul in whatever circumstance you're in. You begin to speak the language of faith. Your faith is increased because you're looking out and you're giving thanks for something more than just the material blessings and, and, and more than just complaining about the lack of material blessings. Even to give thanks when you feel like you don't have control over the outcome of the things in your life, but to give thanks because God's grace is on the move, not only in you, but in others as well. And this I have found to be so sustaining in my prayer life is the confidence. And sometimes I have wanted God to move quicker. There are times when I'm like, Lord, how is it that it takes so long for the vindication to come? And yet I have seen with such confidence and I've seen the growth of my own faithfulness, my own perseverance, my own spiritual muscles and prayer muscles grow because as I waited on the Lord confidently, his vindication was always more than I could ask or think or imagine. I told you, we prayed that prayer in 93. 
We didn't realize the journey that the answer God would bring. We didn't realize the journey, how long and how different than we expected. Every step of the way, God was digging in my soul, getting rid of all kinds of weeds and all kinds of things that were distractions and setting me free and healing me and dealing with my pride and dealing with my, you know, my self-centeredness and my ambition and my, my you know, over-desires for success and other things. And then in 2004, we came to New City. And within a very short amount of time, all the things that we had been preaching for 11 years, all the things we had been teaching for 11 years, caught on like a wildfire. And God spoke to Lisa and spoke to me. I am vindicating you. I am vindicating you. Sometimes it takes a long time. David was anointed king. It was 11 or 12 years before he became the king. But there has to be a confidence that whether it's quickly or whether it's over a process, our God vindicates his faithful and persevering people. And this is the depth. This is the disposition. This is the atmosphere of the effective prayer person. Will you receive this today in Jesus name? Amen.